Famished Craving, Reflections on the Role Fame Has Played in Human Affairs, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 9. There was this decision, this bold, outrageous decision that had to be outrageous, which was killing the king. It had to be decisive. It had to be uh, lawless in, at one level and the definition of law at another. You see, the beginning, the, a lawless act which is the beginning of all law, it didn't work. But the impulse is exactly this decisionist impulse to do the most outrageous thing and to start a new order. Well, it didn't work. So what then happens? Well, I, I, I don't know how to, I wouldn't want to make this too simplistic, but I, there's a story, and it, it, it was passed on to me by uh, Bob Hammer and Kelly, who's doing some research in this area, but I find it absolutely fascinating. And the reason I find it fascinating is because it helps shed light on what's happening in postmodern, the, the world of postmodern nihilism, I think. And it's some research done by Carol Bloom, who wrote a book called Rousseau and the Republic of Virtue. And in that book, she talks about uh, Robespierre, you know, who for a while was the uh, leader of the, of the revolution. Robespierre insisted, and he had a few people guillotined who disagree with him, at one point, that they have this festival of, of the supreme being. He understood, no doubt viscerally, that all of this, two things, that, that in order to justify all this bloodshed, one had to invoke, one had to have religious uh, rationale for it. And secondly, probably, he understood that one was never going to call a halt to it until it was given relig- religious sanction. The very fact that it was going on was a testimony to the fact that n- none of it had, had as yet achieved religious status. You see what I mean? It, ha- it wasn't sacred. Uh, even killing the king, you see, it wasn't a sacred act. Had it been a sacred act, there would have been no need for any more killing, but it wasn't. And so the need to have a sacred death or, to, or the need to sacralize the deaths that have already occurred, you see, this is, this is what you see developing even though the people who are most conscious of the process are, are only marginally conscious of this mechanism at work, but sort of groping for some kind of sacred violence that would, that would call a halt to everything and bring the new order into being. Well, what's interesting is that, first of all, the, the guillotines are going crazy. Robespierre decides, now I'm not saying these in his head, the, the, there was this logic, but, it's, but I, think, I think to some extent that's true. But more importantly is what happens, in fact, the process itself. This is why Girard calls it a mechanism. It begins to move in its own direction. It takes its own course. So the, the guillotines are going, but there seems no end in sight. The attempt to sacralize the violence uh, is launched in terms of this festival of the, of the supreme being. And there've been. I've read a few accounts of this, and they're all funny. And it was very corny. It was the kind of thing when we try to invent rituals. You know, we, we're the worst at it. And so uh, this was one of those concocted things. And 
uh, the the goddess of liberty and so on. Uh, and H.G. Wells has a thing that's very funny about the the statue sort of coming up out of something and creaking and groaning and a, it's kind of a it must have been a it, it must have been something else anyway. What Carol Bloom uh, discovers about it is that Robespierre, in the procession, Robespierre marched behind all the other uh, revolutionary dignitaries in a place more or less where the king would have marched, and he was wearing a sky blue jacket, a yellow waistcoat, and a yellow pair of trousers. Now, that, what does that mean? It doesn't mean anything to us, except the outfit was, at that time, absolutely identifiable by almost everybody as the outfit worn by Werther in Goethe's novel, The Sorrows of Young Werther. Werther was a, was a melancholic romantic who committed suicide. So here's what Bloom says. And by the way, when Goethe's novel came out, there was a wave of suicide because this novel was so, it was the, it was romanticism reaching its, its dark romanticism, you see, the melancholic romantic coming finally to suicide. And here's what Bloom says, quote, Thus, the combination, the outfit, the wardrobe, carried the connotations of, quote, the suicide costume. And Robespierre's presentation of his public person attired in this widely understood sign of impending sacrifice carried the message that the terrorist was to be known as his own victim, end quote. You know, the king is the, as I've said over and over again since we've started this series, the king is the victim with a, with a, a suspended sentence. So the king is always the marked one, not really one of us, you see the exception. And so once he's gone, the guillotines keep clicking away, then you have the, the, the mantle falls to whom? Robespierre. He's now in the position of the king, meaning a marked man, meaning the sacred executioner slash king slash victim. Exactly the role he played. He was the sacred executioner. He ordered the guillotines uh, in motion. He was the, the king in the sense that he took on that role and he walked in the procession that way and he dressed in a suicide costume and he began to talk about all the daggers are being drawn against me and so on. What is going on here? This is, if you try to analyze this in terms of one man's psychology, you never get to it, you see. Something was coming up out of the crisis, the social crisis, and it was taking hold of uh, of people caught up in that crisis in a way they didn't even understand themselves. I would say, how could it have been understood, really? On the other hand, when Bloom says to us, speaking of Robespierre, that his suicide costume was a costume uh, anticipating what she calls the impending sacrifice, carried this costume carried a message. She says the message was, quote, the terrorist was to be known as his own victim. Now, if you take that sentence, everything has, 
mo the modern world, we have to understand the modern world in terms of the French Revolution in a way. If you go back and you just take that little sentence, the terrorist was to be known as his own victim. Now, we really have to do this in terms of the Western world, but you don't, if you, you can go to the Islamic radicals, the, the suicide bombers, what's, what's happening there? The terrorist is his own victim. You get this, this, this convergence of idol in the sense of the hero, the martyr, is the sacred executioner, is the victim. You see what I mean? It's all bound up together. In Robespierre, you get exactly the same thing. And in the postmodern nihilism of the, of the fringes of the rock world, you get the same thing. You get, you get the, uh, the sort of hate-mongering of the, of the sacred executioner and the self-loathing of the suicide and the, and the idolatry of the rock star uh, syndrome. You get a perverse version of exactly the same thing. And so what I, all I'm trying to do is say, how are we to make sense of these things? If we, take, if we start to ask questions anthropologically and ontologically, I, I think these, we begin to see uh, certain things. Now, if I go back to that uh, Trent Reasoner article that the uh, tape subscriber sent me, it begins by saying that Trent Reasoner is... Sell, uh, singing songs, wailing songs, the article says, about self-loathing, sexual obsession, torture, and suicide. And, well, the question is, is this a little bit like wearing a sky-blue jacket and yellow waistcoat and yellow trousers? Well, it's hard to... You see what I'm saying? In any event, the article goes on just to give you a feel for it because one of the things I'd said earlier is that we hope and pray that these things are marginal, that they'll pass. Usually this is what we tell ourselves. Well, it's just kids, you know, and they'll get over it and so on. And there's, I must say, there's a little hope for that. The, the thing is that things haven't really gone totally to hell yet, have they? So it's possible that, that we will muddle through. I, I, I don't want to rule out the possibility. Muddling through looks to me more and more like the way to go. So I don't want to, I don't want to uh, rule that out. In any event, the... I, what I tried to say is that the, the, these phenomena are of interest to us regardless of how marginal they are because they are, they are supremely symptomatic of the underlying ont uh, anthropological and ontological issues, even if they remain marginal. So that was that. But then it turns out if this article uh, is right, which must be, it, they may not be quite as marginal as we would like. The article says, nearly all of Reasoner's lyrics are unprintable, and his videos with their frightful scenes of dismemberment and sadomasochism have been censored and banned outright by MTV. Now, I think you probably have to do something to get banned outright by MTV. Uh, but in any of it, so there you have it. Dismemberment and sadomasochism, I mean, I'm just, just look at this thing. Go back to Robespierre. You kill the king, it didn't work. And then you start to dress like the sacrificial victim. Uh, what does that mean? What dismemberment is? What it's it's the sacrificial gesture, and then sadomasochism. What is that? That's the sacrificial gesture rebounding on oneself. Uh, you see, these are strange things, and I don't want to talk about them. I don't want this. I, I, I don't. I want us to have loftier things. I, I'm going to get to some loftier things. But so, so we would say. All of us in this room would say. 
dismemberment, sadomasochism. Yuck. Surely nobody's interested. Well, the article says, uh, Nine Inch Nails' three dark and complex albums, uh, one in 1989 entitled Pretty Hate Machine, a 1992 Grammy-winning album entitled Broken, and their current Grammy nominee and million-selling mega-hit entitled The Downward Spiral, all made Billboard's pop charts. And then the article says the group's continuing self-destruct tour they're making a tour entitled self it's called the self-destruct tour uh, the the uh, tour has played 83 sold out concerts in 71 cities in the last year and has won raves from critics and fans for performances quote as intense and viscerally thrilling as any in rock He's a good-looking guy, a fan says of Reasoner, but it's his anger that gets to me, end quote. Reasoner told a Los Angeles Times music critic uh, that rock music needs to be mysterious and subversive, and he says, your parents should hate it. If you think I worship Satan because of something you've seen in The Closer, which is a video that he has done, he says, well, that's great. And it turns out Closer is a video in which there's a crucifixion of a monkey that takes place. There. Well, this is strange stuff. And it, it is supremely unworthy of our attention if it's just what most people think it is. And I hope and pray and think that it may remain marginal, but it, even if it does it tells us something about what's going on. It is a tremendously important symptom of the crisis. So, now, I start out with this question. What happens when there turns out to be too many Alexanders? doesn't seem to have anything to do with this at all. Well, here's what Browdy says, immediately following that <coughs> question. What happens when there turns out to be too many Alexanders? In the, I'm still quoting Browdy. In the famed society of Rome, as well as in the Renaissance, men were particularly intrigued by a late-blooming anecdote in which a young man named Herostratus, on the day of Alexander's birth, burns down the temple of Diana at Ephesus so that he can be as famous as the newborn king's son. If the goal was only fame then any extreme act, even violence and destruction, might do. Or, as the Renaissance writers often phrased it, we know the name Herostatus, but the names of the temple's architects are lost. End quote. So he starts out asking, what happens in the world of too many Alexanders? And the next thing he talks about is an act which is of this same kind of decisive act, which is to destroy a temple, destroy an existing religious shrine, to be known as the destroyer of the religious shrine, and therefore to be... And as I say, Browdy comes to this without the anthropological background, and I don't, I'm not condescending to him because he's a, obviously a very uh, competent scholar, but... The point is, 
in that act, that act of destroying the temple, you have again an impulse that comes out of the crisis. And the, and the impulse is to create from the ashes of something. And it ha the ashes can't be, you can't just, you know, burn down the local shop, you know. It has to be the temple. It has to be the king. It has to be something decisive like that. And this, and he says it's the impulse to fame, but fame is just an attenuated version of the of deification. So it's, it's, it, it, it's related anthropologically to that. And I think it helps throw some light as a distant mirror on some of the things that are happening on the fringes of the, of the world of postmodern nihilism or Dionysian nihilism. Okay, now having said that, we should say some nice things. Okay, so the question is, is there an alternative to that kind of madness? And in order to begin to answer the question, we have to go back and see that at the heart of all of that madness is a mimetic phenomenon. And that is what Gerard calls internal mediation. It begins with the leveling of everything, people imitating each other. The example that I used uh, last time was of, of Neville sitting in, the, in Virginia Woolf's novel, Neville deciding that he didn't want to have anything to do with, the, with uh, the transcendence that was being mediated to him by the headmaster. And so he turns and looks at Percival down the row and the whole problem of internal mediation and the idolatry and the craziness and the, con and the competition and, and rivalry and, and resentment, the resentment, anger, rage that's built up. The, the title of, the, of uh, the article about Nine Inch Nails was The Music of Rage. The sort of tremendous resentment and rage gets built up in, that, in a world that's, that's falling into a mimetic crisis. And the question is, is there, is there something else? And obviously there is something else which is what we might call good mimesis. Good mimesis is what, when we, today we say, well, the problem is, we pick up the paper and we see things going to hell, and we say, well, the problem is these kids don't have any good role models, which is just our way of saying it's a mimetic problem, isn't it, fundamentally? Uh, because, well, they have, they have a few athletes and a few rock stars, but the athletes and rock stars are just like them. They just happen to have a little bit more talent or panache, uh, as the case may be, eventually that's back to mimicking themselves. It's like that Jules Pfeiffer cartoon of the kid who says, well, I, I didn't want to be myself. I wanted to be, you know, these other ki kids. So the question of imitation, emulation, uh, so on, it comes back in because that's both the source of the disease and the source of the cure. The, the way Girard speaks of it is in terms of external mediation and internal mediation. This is a, this is a, a pretty generic way of speaking of it. External means simply somebody outside of my social environment, fundamentally outside of my social environment. So what I'd like to talk about is 
the vine and branches discourse. Ultimately, what I want to talk about, the vine and branches discourse. How the, how Christianity in its notion of things like the vine and branches and its notion of the communion of saints, the body of Christ, etc., represents another alternative which does not require hierarchy. Now, I'm no enemy of hierarchy myself. And I think you, one has to be a fool to be, to be uh, constitutionally opposed to hierarchy. Because when you get in trouble and you dial 911, what you want on the other end is hierarchy. You want somebody who can come with a whistle and a, and a baton, if need be, and put a stop to whatever it is going on. That's hierarchical, you see, particularly the whistle. If the whistle, if the whistle can be blown and things come to a halt, that's because some kind of hierarchy exists. That whistle is endowed with a, a, a prestige which is hierarchical. And we all want that to survive. So let's not be too... It's part of the revolutionary fervor of our time to be always against hierarchy because we see the sins of hierarchy, but we don't see its benefits more and more. Now, there are people who see its benefits, and sometimes they're the rabid right-wingers who want to cling to hierarchy for the wrong reason. They, they just, they, they're willing to get rid of the gospel message in order to cling to the hierarchy. You see what I'm saying? Uh, so, and other people are willing to toss the gospel message out in order to destroy hierarchy or in the process of destroying hierarchy. So, I'm not an enemy of hierarchy. However, I think that one of the things the gospel does is that it reveals the arbitrariness of hierarchical systems because we, in fact, are all children of God. God loves each one of us. We are all brothers and sisters, so that anything that distinguishes us is incidental and, to some extent, when it's in the socio-political realm, arbitrary. Someone happens to be born in this or that environment. Somebody else is born in another one. You see? That's an arbitrary thing. And uh, an awful lot of our social distinctions are based on that. So I think hierarchy, the old-fashioned hierarchies, will be compromised or at least exposed as arbitrary. Now, we may reach a point of maturity where we can tolerate them and enjoy their benefits even though we recognize them as being arbitrary and, and insubstantial at the fundamental level. And that would be very gracious of us to do that and self-serving as well because it would be a lot easier to live with them probably than to live without them. But the point of this is that we're entering a world where, where they will not be able to be sustained in the old way. So I think we have to ask ourselves, is there a way of, of remaining sane and civil and, and, and to move towards our, our sanctification without hierarchy? And I think that's where the Christianity's uh, notion of imitating Christ and imitating those who imitate Christ comes in. So I want to move in that direction and think about it a little bit. First of all, last time I talked about Shakespeare and I read some things from Troilus and Cressida that Shakespeare, some things that Shakespeare writes about 
the role of fame and emulation and so on and so forth. But Shakespeare understood the other aspect of it. He understood what we call good mimesis as well. One of the characters in, Ju in Julius Caesar, Artemidorus, says in there, my heart laments that virtue cannot live out of the teeth of emulation. He's exacerbated in a way because he realizes that if there's going to be virtue, it's going to be because somebody is copying or emulating somebody who's virtuous. That's how it happens. And so there you have the problem. And a little slippage in that problem, and you have the whole modern problem of people copying each other again. So how does how do we ensure that the slippage doesn't take place or that it that if it takes place it's it's not it's it's not as dangerous and disastrous as it might otherwise be. Browdy quotes a figure whom I'd never heard of, Inigo Jones, who was who did now this is an obscure figure, designed sets for Ben Johnson's uh, court mask. And this figure, Inigo Jones, said, quote, For who doth fame neglect, doth virtue scorn. In other words, the reason we have to have theater and the reason theater has to, have it, has to be uh, in the business of providing some moral paragon for people is because we need to have famous people who are virtuous and moral if we're going to have virtuous and moral citizenry. You see, you have to have someone who, or as Artemidorus says, my heart laments that virtue cannot live out of the teeth of emulation. There's a little, little problem there, teeth of emulation. You see that it could go wrong at any moment. Well, I was put in mind of that. Uh, late last year, there was an article in the New York Times, a series of articles really about uh, the uh, crisis in in juvenile delinquency. And in one of these articles, there were several people interviewed, and one was Mary Taylor Prevetti, and she's an administrator of a pretrial juvenile detention center in New Jersey. And here's what she said, quote, In 20 years in this business, I've discovered that the kids that are turned around in almost every case are attached or glued to one decent human being. One of the causes for kids falling apart is that these children have no one paying attention to them. In here, there's a lot of father hunger. I see it in how the kids try to model themselves after our officers, asking to look at pictures of their families. That's very touching, I think, don't you think? The kids say on the street where I live, there ain't one house has a father. Grown-ups have abandoned these kids, and the level of anarchy is getting worse. So you, there you see the problem graphically, the problem of the lack of some kind of model. And she says she's never met any one of these young people that's been turned around without being attached or glued to one decent human being. And this idea of being glued to one decent human being Obviously, what she's trying to, to, to get at there is something more powerful than we usually think of when we think of some, well, he admires or something. She sees, she, she's trying to get at some kind of bonding that's more powerful than that. 
obviously this is what happens between parents and children or what should happen between parents and children. But it doesn't end there. And the question is, is there in the Christian tradition a mature adult version of that? Obviously there is. It's the imitation of Christ. That's at the heart of of a Christian spirituality. Right from the beginning, Paul talks about it. The first New Testament writer talks about it. But just as in the Vine and Branches discourse, Paul doesn't, it, it isn't, it's a, it's an extended relationship often. You see, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, as Christ imitates his Father. You see, so this is why the Vine and Branches discourse is very helpful because you, you see that it's it's the communion of saints. It's the, it's a linkage. And so, you could say, one thing you could say is I can measure to speak in purely in Christian terms. I could you could say, a measure of my, of my. Spiritual life, might be, how many steps in this process would I have to go? In Each of us, you could say, is in a kind of spiritual mimetic phylum, you know. And so we, we are the heirs and, and, uh, and uh, ancestors of, you see, we receive it from somebody and we pass it on to somebody. This, by the way, in the New Testament, when Jesus takes the family cavalierly. You could say that. He shocks some of his contemporaries because he says, well, you know, really and truly, folks, it's not the family. This this revelation, the mystery, is not going to be passed on. The, 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 the agency for passing on this mystery is not going to be biology. It's going to be it's going to be like biology, because it is inherited. Paul says, "I only tell you what I've been told. I only pass on to you what was passed on to me." So it is inheriting and passing on, inheriting and passing on. But it's not biological. Now, we are implicated in a biological process too, and because we love our parents and we love our children, we want the biological process to be part of that other one, you see. But the, but, the, but the spiritual tradition is passed on like that, but outside of the biological one. And that's why I think Jesus takes family affairs uh, fairly uh, cavalierly, because he realizes that's not the way it's going to be. The problem with the fam- family tradition is that it comes, it's a package deal so that you, it's very easy when you pass on the tradition only in those terms to get an ethnically, an ethnocentric version, a, uh, a, a family-centered version, you see, a particular version, and to, and to confuse the universal element with the, with the cultural, culturally specific element. What I'm trying to say is there's this process, and what we, we play a role in it. When Jesus says, I'm divine, you're the branches. Only by being branches can you bear fruit. Otherwise, you, 
you will you grow arid and lifeless and will eventually be gathered and thrown on fire. One could measure the the degree to which one is involved in that vine and branches source of life by asking how many steps would I have to take in this sort of spiritual phylum in which I find myself before I come to a person who is consciously and ardently imitating Christ. In other words, uh, is the one I'm imitating doing that? Well, maybe not. Well, is the one he or she is imitating? Is, is he or she doing that? Well, maybe. well, if I have to go back five steps, five, here in quotation marks, generations, even though it might, all, all of these people might be contemporaneous, if I have to go back five, well, that's five. So I'm five on the chart. If I have to go back two, that's better. If I have to go back one, that's better. If I myself am trying to imitate Christ, that's fine. I'm probably doing it on the basis of somebody else's model, somebody else's example, you see. So there's always going to be some kind of linkage. But I would say that, that we could sort of take our pulse in terms of this, in terms of this, uh, this, Growth out from the from the vine, in terms of how far how far we are away from somebody who is ardently and consciously trying to imitate Christ. Well, what I find so helpful about that model is that it doesn't require hierarchy. That that one can relate to another person who is in no way in a hierarchical relationship to myself, but whose attempt to imitate Christ, even though it too may be attenuated, but nevertheless, to the extent that I can perceive that person's attempt to imitate Christ in our relationship, I can have an absolutely non-hierarchical relationship with that person, perfectly human relationship with that person, and still in all, there's a transcendent element in it. In other words, it's a way of having, experiencing transcendence without hierarchy. And the, the modeling that's going on, we model each other all the time. But, we, but it never becomes modeling each other. You see what I mean? Because what I admire, what I emulate in this other person is precisely that little aspect, which may only be an aspect. It may, it may just be the... It may be essential. It may be the essential thing. But it may be 2% of that person's personality. But it's that that interests me. It's that tendency to want to imitate Christ in, engulfed as it always is in each of us by all of the other sort of ordinariness of our life. But that little thing in us that wants to imitate Christ, that's what fascinates me in the other. And so I can, be, I can admire the other and emulate the other with no, no A, no hierarchy and B, no danger of turning it into some kind of internal mediation. You see what I'm saying? Why did Paul say to the people he wrote to, imitate me as I imitate Christ? Why did he have to say that? Why is it in the canon? We need something in flesh and blood. We have the saints. Now, they represent, they represent human beings imitating Christ, but we also need people in our uh, living in our own lives, you see, who who 
are moving in that direction, even if it's only 2% of their being that's moving in that direction, it's that 2% that, that interests us at the, at the religious level. The, the other 98% may interest us in the sense of we love them and they're fun or we, <coughs> whatever it is about them, but it's that 2% that awakens a kind of religious interest and that is the heart of our experience of, of real brotherhood with them. And no idolatry. So that if I look out and I see somebody looking at me and they think, they say, they think, you know, I, this, I really like this guy. And he's, I, I, I mean, I want to, uh, you know what I mean? He's sort of going in a direction I like to go in. I don't have to, we all feel un- uncomfortable with that, you know. But if, if we're in, if it's part of the vine and branches, we can relax a little bit. I mean, one always has to be a little wary of idolatry, but we can relax a little bit because it's a form of emulation which has some a kind of safety valve in it that's always going back to Christ, you see. Well, the thing is, what is it about Christ that we are emulating? Are we, is, it, is it that, I mean, there are lots of things to emulate about Christ, his forgiveness, his generosity, but fundamentally, what do his disciples ask him? Teach us how to pray. Fundamentally, this is what Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Christ is imitating the Father. So fundamentally, this, this chain, you see, Jesus says, the, the, my Father is the vine dresser. You see? So it's not, this vine and branches isn't, Christ is our, is our supreme mediator. But we are all mediators. Simone Weiss says the essence of created things is to be intermediaries. So that's who we are. And, and Christ is the supreme intermediary because he's the one that introduces us to the, to, to the Father, to the God whom he called Father. And that's, it's in that link. So what I... So a, a source of ontological grounding... Which is, which is not hierarchical, which is nevertheless transcendent, which doesn't sacrifice anything in terms of real human relationships, intimacy, the richest kind of human intercourse, you see, the best. Nevertheless, something with a transcendent element in it. Uh, I think that's, I think that's uh, what it is. And we've all had this experience of being in relationships with each other and feeling very close to the other person precisely because one senses in that other person this interest in following Christ. And uh, to me, that's the mystery of, of, of uh, the communion of saints and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, that sort of thing. There was a Benedictine monk in, at Downside Abbey in in uh, England who died a year or two ago, whose name was Iltid Trethewan. And Sebastian Moore wrote a, a uh, obituary for him. And in that obituary, he said the following. And I just want to use it as an example of this special connection. He says, Ilted's conviction 
that nothing made any sense without the grounding of the mind in God never managed to spell itself out in the language in which we try to make sense of things. He tended to say, quote, you either see it or you don't. I can only point to it. Sebastian Moore goes on to say, look, already premised in our search for knowledge is, is God's presence. And then he says, God prima veritas, the first truth, must first of all be truth. And this truth must be first in our mind the huge unacknowledged major premise of all our thinking. It's obvious once you see it, but it takes a person to open your eyes to it. And Ilted was such a person. And to me, that's a testimony to this, to this mystery. The trans- We need someone else, or as Howard Thurman said to the people that asked him to start the Fellowship Church in San Francisco years and years ago, trust it with my trust until you can trust it with your own, that kind of thing. Well, I was in the bookstore the other day. My budget, my book budget has, has overextended, so I go in the bookstores and loiter, you know. And I was reading the Pope's book, and I looked, off, just to tell you, I looked off to the side, and there was this book, and this was not even in the religious section, this was sort of, you know, where all the bestsellers are or something. I looked off to the side and there was this book entitled Jesus, CEO. <laughs> I thought, no. Oh, God. <laughs> this was a book saying, you know, this, is, this thing will really help you succeed in life, you know. You. I thought, oh, no. But anyway, before the bubble burst, I was just sitting there and I was looking at the book and thinking about that. And so I want to share a couple of things with you that have to do with, uh, with this mystery. First of all, you know that the Pope was the man of the year. Now, we're talking about fame in this class, so here's the most, is he the most famous man in the world? I don't know. The first paragraph in the story about the Pope being man of the year is the following. People who see him, and countless millions have, do not forget him. His appearances generate an electricity unmatched by anyone else on earth. That explains, for instance, why in rural Kenyan villages, thousands of children, plus many cats and roosters and even hotels, are named John Paul. Charisma is the only conceivable reason why a CD featuring him saying the rosary in Latin against the background of Bach and Handel is currently ascending the charts in Europe. And I would say, what's charisma? I mean, charisma, no doubt the Pope has charisma. But uh, that, I don't think, goes to the heart of it. And uh, later in the article, it says the following. The man of the year's ideas about what can be accomplished differ from those of most mortals. They are far grander, informed by a vision as vast as the human determination to bring them into being. After discovering the principle of the lever and the fulcrum in the 3rd century B.C., Archimedes wrote, quote, Give me where to stand, and I will move the earth, end quote. And then Time Magazine article concludes by saying, John Paul knows where he stands, end quote. Well, to me, I, I found it interesting, and I, I was happy that the Pope was man of the year. I mean, uh, I thought that was probably a healthy thing. 
And it says he knows where he stands. And where does he stand? Well, I, I've been reading his book, and I told you, his book is, is a floralagia. Every page is filled with quotations from tradition, from Scripture. So you don't, so he is simply passing on to us what was passed on to him. He sees himself as an intermediary. He's not, uh, he, he knows where he stands. He stands in the tradition. He's passing on something. So when one finds him fascinating, the fascination doesn't stop there. That's the point. The fascination, we're fascinated by him because he's fascinated by something else. Fascination is not the right word. Jesus' disciples, you could say, were fascinated by him because, they were, because he was fascinated by something else. So they said, teach us to pray. You see what I mean? They saw, they, it was, in Girardian terms you would say, we imitate somebody else's desire. They saw in him a desire for doing what the Father wanted. And we've, in this article about the Pope, it says he makes all his decisions on his knees. One of his closest uh, associates was interviewed, and he says, I'll tell you this. He goes to the chapel every day. Every time he has a major decision to make, he makes it on his knees. What's that say to us about him? Are we fascinated with him because of him? Not. The ultimate, I mean, I'm sure because of somebody that famous, you know, you get all kinds of stuff. But something else, you see, this is that little element that goes beyond so that the admiration uh, goes to that person and then goes beyond. You see what I mean? It carries beyond to where he's looking. It's like the image of Dante on, at the top of the Purgatorio Mountain. He looks at Beatrice and she's looking at the griffin, which is the Christ. And so uh, by a kind of ricochet, he finds himself imitating Christ. And that's part of this, part of this mystery. So I was thinking about all these things and I was thinking about a uh, review of the Dalai, Lama, da- Dalai Lama's book that I had read in the, in the San Francisco papers. And the review was more or less positive, but it was critical at a couple of points. And I want to I touch on those for a second. But I had been sent in the week before from a tape subscriber this wonderful thing by the Vietnamese Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh, who was talking about, in this little thing he sent me, about the boat people he interviewed, the Vietnamese boat people. And he said, to understand Buddhism, I'll tell you a story about the boat people. He said, when, when I talked to the boat people, over and over again, I was told by them that these fragile things they were floating around on, you know, were easily destroyed. And so a tempest would come up or bad weather, and there would be the danger of panic. And if they panicked, everything was lost because then they would start to scramble, you know, and everybody would be afraid and the whole thing would be lost. And he said, over and over again, I was told that there, was, there would be one person on, on the boat who managed not only to stay centered and avoid the panic, but who managed to emanate something else to the others that calmed them and kept them from panic. That this person maybe said something, maybe did something, maybe not, but somehow was the source of some kind of calm 
that kept the panic from spreading and uh, made it possible for them to survive. Now, that's really good. That's what we call good mimesis. Bad mimesis is when we imitate each other's panic and we get into an av a kind of psychological avalanche. Uh, but here's this person who manages to stay grounded. And this whole, this is ontological density, ontological moorings, and so on. And then Thich Nhat Hanh said, that's Buddhism for you. The, the Buddhist, the practicing Buddhist, must be that person who can remain that calm in that situation. And he said this, quote, all the teachings of Buddhism agree on this point. We are each that person. Our earth is like a small boat in a dangerous storm, and so we must be ourselves. We must be our best. Please remember, one person is very important. One person is very much. Well, okay. I want to reflect on that in terms of the Dalai Lama's book for a second. Because Thich Nhat Hanh says, we must be ourselves, which that's the way we Westerners think about it too. But I think, the, and it's just a way of expressing oneself. To be ourselves, what does that mean? In the West, in the popular sense, we say, well, I'll do it my way. I'll be myself. I'm going to just find out who I really am and all that. And I don't think it's that. Well, I was thinking about this because I'd been sent this and I'd read it and I was pondering it. I like it and I was pondering it. And I, then I was, you know, the cheap read. I was sitting there in the bookstore reading the Dalai Lama's book. And in the book, the Dalai Lama has a chapter about the relationship between the student and the master in Buddhism, which is absolutely essential. So essential, the Dalai Lama says, quote, you should constantly and deliberately try to prevent the kind of perceptions that lead you to see faults in the spiritual master, end quote. In other words, you have, I would say, how does one achieve this kind of calmness? Is it by being oneself? I don't think so. It's, in, it's being in that kind of relationship, to have that. In other words, it's to be grounded in the model. And you must do, the Dalai Lama says, you must do everything, even though it violates every impulse in the Western spirit. And I, I think that the reviewer didn't like this about the Dalai Lama's book. And I think we Westerners probably will never be able to pull it off. Our tradition is so shot through with, the, with a demythologizing itch and that's a good thing. The prophetic tradition, which is where we all come from, is anti-idolatrous and demythologizing. And so I think there is a problem. I don't think that's going to work in the West. Nevertheless, one has to respect it because, in a sense, what the Dalai Lama is saying is if you let that one little thing slip, that's a form of hierarchy. And the Dalai Lama says, fine, destroy all the hierarchy you want, but you better keep this one. And that is the relationship between the disciple and the master. And the disciple must root out of his imagination any idea that would introduce the thought that the master has any faults. 
Now, this is a radical statement. Why is the Dalai Lama making such a radical statement? Because I think he realizes that if those thoughts creep in, the last hierarchy crumbles and you're into modernism. You're into postmodernism. You're into the you're into this mess, the normlessness, you see? And I, I, I think it's marvelous that he insists on that, even though Westerners are going are gonna to bristle. He's saying you have to be in relationship to a transcendent other. Your, your master is the transcendent other. Don't do anything that would rob him of transcendence. And I think what we have to do is not quarrel with that at all. That's, a, that's the Buddhist path. And it is a path out of the, you know, the abyss of postmodern nihilism. It's a path that leads to some place. And then one has to admire it greatly. The reason I'm, I speak of it here is because it's different and the same in some way. It has similarities with Christianity and it's distinct from Christianity. The similarity is that one always has, there has to be some transcendent feature in one's relationship if they're not going to fall into this internal mediation and all of the kind of resentment and anger and, and fury and sacrificiality that are, are bred in that, in that crisis. There has to be a transcendent element. And the Dalai Lama would protect that transcendence in this way no thoughts that this other person might be just another person. Christianity, without criticizing that, I think Christianity has another strategy. And that is this sort of 2% strategy I'm talking about. That the other person continues to be just another person. But because I see them looking out of the corner of their eye at Christ, I, my interest in them, my desire to emulate them, admire them, has this transcendent element that keeps it from my admiration and emulation from being internal mediation without relying on any hierarchy. You see what I'm saying? So I bring the Dalai Lama in not not to quarrel with him at all. I admire that. And I especially admire that as an alternative to this ridiculousness that got us into the modern problem, which is as soon as we eliminate all hierarchy, everybody will be happy. It's not true. It's absolutely the opposite of that. But I, on the other hand, I think hierarchy is on the wane, and it's, I don't think that that can be easily reversed. And so we may have to find a way to maintain a sense of transcendence in those modeling relationships that is not based on hierarchy. And I haven't done a very good job of exploring that, but I, at least... I, I want to raise that issue and then try to explore it as we go along and see if we can't come to more clarity about about what that means. For example, when Paul said, imitate me because I imitate Christ, he also said, look, I'm a sinner. You know, I'm a, I'm a sack of all kinds of craziness. But that doesn't have anything to do with it, you see. I'm not, he didn't say, imitate me because I'm imitating Christ because I'm a perfect imitator of Christ. I'm, I'm far from a perfect imitator of Christ. I'm this bumbling idiot. Nevertheless, I'm giving it a shot. And if you, if you keep, keep your eye on that, the fact that however poorly I'm doing it, I'm imitating Christ, then you don't have to turn me into an idol. You can still recognize my limitations and my, and my funny business. But in your 
emulation of me. You just have to keep your eye on that little part of me that's emulating Christ, which is in, who's emulating the Father. In other words, that's the vine and branches. And I think it's absolutely extraordinary. And I think we're at a time in history when we need to come better to understand that and understand its, its value for us as we leave behind us uh, to a very large extent the world of hierarchy, which has been our life support system. I mean, when the principal of a high school has to screw his courage to the sticking place in order to walk to the men's room, you know that hierarchy is gone. I think we ought to become a little more fundamentally deferential. Uh, I think we ought to be, we ought to, and we, we need to help our children understand this, that an act of deference is not an insult to the one who's being deferential. It's, a, it's an act of grace. And, and I mean, how, given today's environment, how, would, how could we possibly introduce that? So I'm all for having some kind of, a, 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 a kind of hierarchy that exists because of grace and not because of power. But in the meantime, in the meantime, does Christianity provide an alternative to the anthropological and ontological ravages of postmodernity that does not depend on a re revival of, of the sacred system or a restoration of some kind of artificial hierarchy? And I think it does. And I think if we can begin to express that and, and, uh, and, and inform that truth, uh, and f and and understand it better, we'll perform a service for ourselves and for for the world. This pops into my head right now. Just the example to talk about. Well, relationships are more real, not less real, when there's this little two percent element in them, and so on. And I just at Christmas time, I was at a party, and. It was a typical party, you know. We ended up in the kitchen drinking wine and carrying on. And uh, and all the people there were people that I knew from either from church or from here. And I found myself, and we was just, and we we weren't talking theology or anything. But I mean, things would come up, but mostly it was just anything and everything. And I finally turned to the to the host and I said, "You know, this, what's happening here, reminds me so much of something Chesterton said, which is, he who has the faith has the fun.' <laughs> and it was because there was a kind of camaraderie." that was not like the camaraderie of the in-group or anything, but it was a camaraderie that was, everybody was really admiring each other in a way that was, that was perfectly healthy and enjoying each other in a way that was perfectly healthy because there was this other little sense of things that just kind of hovered there. It was all just, just part of it in a, in a little way that kept it all from being goofy. And... Uh, so, I, to me, that's the communion of saints. 
But what I've been trying to suggest is that key to the, the instability of the modern world in both cultural and psychological level is the collapse of hierarchy. The gospel harbors no inherent antipathy for hierarchy. The gospel is, is uh, uh, antipathetic to anything that continues to operate upon a sacrificial or scapegoating structure. But hierarchy itself, at least theoretically, is possible for there to be a hierarchy. Without that, I think of, and this is just a way of talking, if I was more theologically informed and so on, I'd probably uh, be better able to articulate this, but I think in general you could say that it's possible to have hierarchies of grace, which are not hierarchies of power. Uh, the monks understand that the abbot, whose name means Abba, represents something for them, and they recognize the value of this hierarchy and live according to it. Now, it's for all hierarchies of grace, there's a tremendous temptation to become a hierarchy of power. So that's the problem that's built into the hierarchy. But I think hierarchy itself is not only tolerable but beneficial and necessary. As I said, you know, when you call 911, you want a hierarchy on the other end. You want somebody who can blow the whistle and stop the and stop what's going on. Uh, so, and that's a kind of crude form, but at least it, it's vivid for all of us. Uh, once you realize that, once you you have the 911 analogy, you realize that the basic reflex, which we all learn from, by osmosis in our culture, which is destroy all hierarchies, is nonsense. Uh, so the question, so that's, that's a, the question of hierarchies is a complicated question, but I think quite clearly what the what the uh, gospel tradition does is that it demonstrates that all hierarchies are arbitrary. Now, that doesn't mean that we should throw them out. There are a lot of arbitrary things that are perfectly healthy. It's nice to have them. Uh, you know, just to take a silly example, if uh, it, it, it's a, there's, a little, there's a little arbitrariness to whether what the pitcher just threw was a ball or a strike. But somebody needs to be there saying it was one or the other, or else you couldn't, the game wouldn't go on. You know, you have to have some kind of, even though it's arbitrary, and even though maybe the runner did beat the guy to, to throw to first base, the umpire says he didn't, and that's it. You know, and game goes on. And so there's a little bit of arbitrariness to it, which makes social life possible. So, so, when the gospel says hierarchies are arbitrary, it desacralizes them and deabsolutizes them and therefore makes them precarious because their source of great stability was their sacred status. So once the hierarchies begin to go, then you have the, so the, the social and the psychological instabilities because both forms of stability were based on some kind of hierarchical arrangement. So then, the, so to make a long story short, my question is, as you know by now, uh, is it possible to have, well, let me back up one more step. The, the psychological function of hierarchy was to introduce into, this, into the social order and in, into the life of the individual some sense of transcendence. There's something 
outside of myself, outside of my social milieu, to which I must uh, offer uh, deference. And it's in that act of deference to that, to that uh, transcendent, either truly transcendent or socially transcendent reality, that my life has some kind of coherence, always in deference to something greater than myself. Now, in a world where the hierarchies are gone, uh, the, the transcendence typically goes the way of hierarchies. So we live in a world without hierarchy, and suddenly it's a world without transcendence. I mean, we may, we may say, well, yeah, I believe, I say the creed or something, but in terms of real functional transcendence, does it really exist anymore? And for most of us, it doesn't. And that's, that's a big crisis, and I think it's, a, it's a, 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 an even bigger crisis at the psychological and ontological level than it is at the cultural level. So the question is, ultimately, the question is, can we have transcendence without hierarchy? And I don't put it that way because I want to do away with hierarchies, but I would like to think, but because in the, a world that is as anti-hierarchical as ours is, in which the, the few remaining hierarchies have been desacralized so that they're merely political or merely economic, economic and political hierarchies may be very powerful and they may have lots of advantages and lots of disadvantages, but they're not sacred system, and nobody believes they are anymore. So, so um, hierarchies are of the old-fashioned kind are more and more difficult to sustain, and they will be increasingly so. So as they go, transcendence tends to go. As transcendence goes, uh, our psychological and uh, spiritual instability uh, increases. So is it possible to have transcendence without hierarchy. And I suggested it is, and I suggested that the unique kind of social interaction, you know, St. Paul really is the, is the sociologist, the Christian sociologist par excellence. And I, when I say Christian socio- sociologist, I don't mean a sociologist who happened to be Christian. I mean a Christian who understood that the, the Christian conversion, Christian, the newness of Christian life required a complete transformation at the social level because it was at the social level where, the, where all the craziness got generated for which primitive religion was the cure. And so Christianity had, had to be concerned about social affairs not because we have interest in social, but because it's intimately connected to religion. So, anyway, St. Paul, I think, is the, is the Christian sociologist par excellence. And he in, uh, insists that if Christianity is to survive and carry its mission into the world, it will have to be as a result of a new kind of community. The, the term Christian means Christling. And if we're Christlings are trying to be Christlings, what fascinating... We would be that. We would be that only if we think that's the only truly free way to live. And once we come to that conclusion and begin to live that way, then we are completely fascinated by those who are trying to do that. And we see in their imitation of Christ something admirable and something we want to emulate, something f- that fascinates us. 
so we can admire it without without overlooking the fact that the other 98% of their being is just as goofy as the 98% of ours. You see what I mean? We don't have to put them on a pedestal. We can admire them and and this and catch. We can. This this comes to this question of the propagation of faith, which no doubt was a was one of these clumsy club-like terms that was, used to be used, you know, and has long been discarded as irrelevant and, and sort of tasteless. Uh, and I, there's good reason for that, no doubt, but I think there's something about the propagation of faith is that we ought to resuscitate that notion. Uh, the, the faith is propagated in this very unique, but at the same time very ordinary way so that one and what's unique about that and I was calling it the communion of saints I think it's probably better to call it something like the fellowship of the Holy Spirit because it's that it's that that uh, impregnating power of the spirit that that suffuses this kind of community or these kind of friendships or relationships allows them to be both perfectly human, perfectly aware of all the faults in the other person, but at the same time completely taken and in admiration and emulation of that little 2% in the other that is trying to be Christ-like. But I wanted to pursue it some more, and I wanted to go back to what we talked about earlier, uh, namely something that the Dalai Lama said, and think about it. I wanted to try to give a feel for the world that the Dalai Lama is addressing in his book. Now, I think it's, as I said, I think it's fascinating that the Dalai Lama and the Pope come out with a book about the same time. And these are, the, these are two of the world's great uh, religious leaders, and they're, they're widely respected. And I think we should... I think we should uh, heed their their call in some way. The Dalai Lama all, obviously wrote his book to the Western world. And the Western world is the one that's in crisis. The whole world's in crisis, but... Uh, and the whole, the whole world is, is eventually going to be in the same depth of the crisis that the Western world is currently in for the same reason that the Western world is in it, because biblical revelation is going to spread out... Uh, and have the same effect. In any event, he's writing it to the Western world, and so it's it's we have to see the. It's just like in the New Testament, you, when you read Luke's Gospel. In order to really get to Luke's Gospel, you have to you have to learn about what the community was like that he was writing to and for. And likewise, you read the Dalai Lama's book, and you have to and you know that he's writing it for the Western world. And you say, well, wait a minute, he's not writing this in a vacuum. He's writing it in light of something he sees when he goes to New York, you know, or to Keokuk, Iowa, or to San Francisco, or to anywhere. You see, he's he's writing it to that world that he sees filled with all the symptoms of the crisis that we've talked about here a lot. Perhaps one of the great commentaries on this crisis is Ulysses' speech in Troilus and Cressida, so I'll go back to it. I quoted Troilus and Cressida a couple of weeks ago on another subject. But this is Ulysses, and I've referred to it so often we probably all have it memorized, but I think it has to, we have to keep going back to it. And it'll help, help us understand. I mean, this is the strangeness of our situation. We had to go to Shakespeare to understand the Dalai Lama. 
and then to try to understand ourselves and maybe even understand our reaction to the Dalai Lama, you see, and things like that. So Ulysses in Trollus and Crusta is asked, what's wrong here? Things are falling apart. In the Greek camp, suddenly there's this rivalry going on, Agamemnon and Achilles, and we can't seem to get a united force together. And, and, uh, and the reason the rivalry is going on is, you, is Achilles, who's a, who's a lesser uh, captain, has challenged the warlord, which is unheard of in, in a conventional hierarchical arrangement. So already there you have this problem of hierarchy. Shakespeare's word for hierarchy is degree. That is to say, he's writing in a, at a time when guilds were were quite quite uh, widespread, and in the guilds you would have the the first, second, third degree, and so on. Degree, so for so degree was a term that was used for any kind of hierarchical structure. And Ulysses says, "Well, here's the problem." They come to Ulysses because he's he's the smart guy among the Greeks, Greeks, and they say to him, "What's the story?" He says, "Here's the problem. The problem is the hierarchy is collapsing. Without it, we don't know how to be human. We don't know how to organize ourselves and prevent this terrible." crisis, which for us in our time is the crisis of modernity. And so here's, the, here's Shakespeare predicting the crisis of modernity. Ulysses says, how could communities, degrees in school, and brotherhoods in cities, peaceful commerce from dividable shores, the primogenity and due of birth, prerogative of age, crowns, scepters, laurels, but by degree stand in authentic place. Now, degrees in school, brotherhoods in cities, peaceful commerce from dividable shores and so on. Once this collapses, I'll go on with the quote, but once this collapses, if it collapses far enough and fast enough, then, then the high school principal has to screw his courage to the sticking place in order to walk to the men's room. You see? Uh, what happens when these distinctions collapse? Well, then, to the extent that they have to be there in order for social order to go on, they have to be imposed by force because they've lost their their status. They've lost their sacral status. Now, this goes back... I don't want to... I interrupt myself. But this goes back to the question of can we have Hierarchies of grace. If we're going to have hierarchies of grace, we better start teaching it to our children at the age of two, uh, three. <laughs> the terrible twos is no time to talk about the hierarchy of grace. Three. Let's start with three. But we need to do that because, as long if we if we try to perpetuate hierarchies that are based on power or sacrality, we will end up if it's based on power in a in power plays contest because it won't work and sacrality is gone so I think one of the things that the Christian experiment ought to be experimenting with and there are plenty of Christian hierarchies and uh, so on so there's something there to work with but we should probably begin to experiment with hierarchies of grace but in any event what Ulysses is saying is that once you take this this hierarchical structure away or call it seriously into question, then you have a crisis. And he says, take but degree away. This is the famous part of the speech. Take but degree away. Untune that string. 
and hark what discord follows. Each thing meets in mere opugnancy. That's the high school principal trying to get to the men's room. You see what I'm saying? It doesn't have... It's, there's no deference and there's no recognition, automatic recognition of anything. Each thing meets in mere repugnancy. The bounded waters should lift their bosoms higher than the shores and make a sop of all this solid globe. That's, that's Thomas Hobbes. Thomas Hobbes, you know, had this sense that civilization is sitting on this volcano of the war of all against all. And we better know that. You know, we better not fall for some kind of la-di-da story about how it's otherwise. I'm not saying Hobbes was 100% correct because he, he Hobbes was, a, was an Old Testament Christian, but nevertheless. So the bounded waters should lift their bosoms higher than the shores and make a sop of all this solid globe. Strength should be lord of imbecility and the rude son should strike his father dead. This neglection of degree it is that by a pace goes backward with a purpose it hath to climb. You see, I don't know why. So when I'm reading Shakespeare, I think to myself, why do I ever read anything else? You know what I mean? I feel the same way when I'm reading the New Testament or when I'm reading Homer or something. But, and this neglection of degree it is that by a pace goes backward with a purpose it hath to climb. You get the, you get the kind of... Uh, quicksand effect of this thing. It's like trying to climb up a sand dune. And suddenly, all the stairs have turned to this sand on a very steep sand dune. And the faster you try to climb, the crazier things fall apart. This neglection of degree it is that by pace goes backward with the purpose it hath to climb. The generals disdained by him one step below. He by the next, that next by him beneath, so every step exampled by the first pace that is sick of his superior, grows to an envious fever of pale and bloodless emulation. It couldn't be said better. You know, it's the supreme analysis of the crisis. 